counterfeit revival. This is a new series in which I have learned many things and I trust that the Holy Spirit will likewise impress your heart with this which is taken from divine inspiration. First, may I invite you to pray with me. Loving Father, as we learn of the insidious methods Satan is using to develop a false revival within God's true church today, open our eyes, quicken our understanding, arouse within us a retentive memory that we may not be misled by this developing counterfeit revival but by God's grace, keep the faith. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Let us turn to scripture as we begin this study. We are reading from Joel, the second chapter. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, and those that suck the breasts, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thy heritage to reproach. From this scripture reading, we learn of a great, genuine revival that is shortly to come, a revival of primitive godliness, such as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. This will come as prophesied to a people who are wholly united in faith and doctrine and standards. But one somehow wonders how this would take place in our day. For as we look at our church, we see disunity with two parties developing. One party desperately trying to hold fast to the historic truths which God gave to his remnant church and praying and hoping for a coming genuine revival Yet, on the other hand, we see the majority party within the church enraptured with a new theology, a desire for change, which is causing them to discard some of the very pillars of our faith and lowering the standards. This new teaching appears to be very beautiful 
and at first glance, charmingly Christ-centered, appealing to many who have been trapped by legalism and insecure in their relationship with the Lord. These individuals are attracted to this new theology for it has brought to them a feeling of full assurance of a present salvation which is independent of any works that they must perform. Still others see in this new theology an escape from doctrinal study, leading them into a love-love theory of a do-nothing religion. But just believe and you are saved now. The ultimate results of this new theology are leading thousands to leave the Seventh-day Adventist Church and causing millions of others within the church to tragically settle down into a Laodicean contentment of a carnal daily experience. It's true this new theology gives them a feeling of liberation which permits many to imbibe in alcohol moderation and a freedom to deck themselves with jewelry, a freedom to use the Sabbath as a day of pleasure and a freedom to deny the spiritual ministry of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary which is so necessary for their personal salvation. Tragically, these people do not realize that in following this new theology, they are accepting the unadulterated teachings of St. Augustine and preparing for a great counterfeit revival. Let me pause here just for a moment to discuss some of these false teachings. Number one, that every individual is born in sin and therefore responsible for Adam's sin. This is a false doctrine that I have vigorously preached against in this tape ministry. Number two, that man's destiny, whether saved or lost, has been predestined by God. Number three, that salvation is unconditional. And this one is being accepted hook, line, and sinker by thousands. Number four, that perfection will never be obtained in this life. Number five, that we will sin until Jesus comes till the very moment that he comes in the clouds of glory. By accepting any or all of these false doctrines, such believers of the new theology teaching will find themselves totally unprepared for what will shortly come to pass. For instance, a great false revival is now developing and will soon come upon us that is instigated by a power of excitement 
which can be traced to two sources, namely nominal Adventists within the church and those within the fallen churches of Babylon. Now, where do we find this? In early writings, page 261, are these words, quote, I saw that God has honest children among nominal Adventists and the fallen churches. Now, isn't that interesting? So we should never, never somehow lose our hope of these individuals. Let me read it again. I saw that God has honest children among the nominal Adventists and the fallen churches. Now notice what she says. And before the plague shall be poured out, ministers and people will be called out from these churches and will gladly receive the truth. Satan knows this. And before the loud cry of the third angel is given, he raises an excitement in these religious bodies that those who have rejected the truth may think. Notice, they think. It's not a fact. I go on to read. That God is with them. He hopes to deceive the honest and lead them to think that God is still working for the churches. Now let me explain how this will take place as we shall discover as we study in this series. As soon as a national Sunday law is proclaimed, the latter reign will commence, which will bring the loud cry. But just before this takes place, there will be a great counterfeit revival or false latter rain which will cause nominal Adventists and the church members of Babylon to believe that this great false revival of excitement is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the apparent result of God's approval in what they are teaching and doing. Now it is upon this basis that apostate Protestantism will demand a national Sunday law, which, when it becomes the law of the land, will be the reason for God to pour out the true latter rain, giving the loud cry in a final appeal for decision. First, let us examine the nature of the true revival. I'm reading from Great Controversy, page 464. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revi revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children, many, 
both of ministers and people will gladly accept those great truths which God has caused to be proclaimed at this time to prepare a people for the Lord's second coming. You know, I can hardly wait for it. What an experience this is going to be when there is a people that are united for one purpose, that they may be like God in their character. But I want you to notice as we read on that it, Satan immediately tries to stop this true revival. The enemy of the souls desires to hinder this work. And before the time for such a movement shall come, he will endeavor to prevent it by introducing a counterfeit. In those churches which he can bring under his deceptive power, he will make it appear that God's special blessing is poured out, there will be manifested what is thought to be great religious interest. Multitudes will exalt that God is working marvelously for them when the work is that of another spirit. Under a religious guise, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the Christian world. Nothing could be more plain that the Lord has revealed to us in this paragraph. So we have learned from early writings and the great controversy that the soon coming counterfeit revival is to be based on excitement and that this false revival, when it comes to full bloom, will be found among the fallen churches of Babylon and, sad to say, among nominal Adventists. This knowledge should shake us up. Next, we need to ask a question. What is the cause of this excitement? It is the outpouring of a counterfeit spirit that will occur just before the true latter rain comes. And that the members who have accepted the new theology will mistakenly believe that this excitement is coming from God. This brings us face to face with today's issue. What is celebration all about? Few seem to realize that the movement to infiltrate the excitement of celebration within Protestant churches was born within the Vatican II Council of 1963. I hold in my hand the 1,032-page collection of Vatican proposals to win back the separated brethren that they might join with Catholicism. On page 457, we discover what they believe will be accomplished by the celebration movement. 
I read. The results will be that little by little, as the obstacles of perfect ecclesiastical communion are overcome, all Christians will be gathered in a common celebration of the Eucharist into the unity of the one and only church. How subtle the plan of Satan. God's remnant should be aware of this significant and dangerous movement. Yet, I'm sorry to say, celebration activity is now being strongly promoted into many of our Seventh-day Adventist churches by the very church leadership that God would have to guard against this activity of Satan. Celebration is a part of the ecumenical program fostered by Rome and never, never forget it. Its purpose is to develop a great religious excitement that will grow into a false revival within Protestantism. If Rome can get Protestantism to drink from her celebration cup, she will become drunk and ready to accept all of Rome's traditions. This false revival in Protestantism will make it possible for Protestantism to demand that Congress declare a national Sunday law to increase their power. Now you may ask, how can this be? Because this supernatural excitement gives the church leadership greater and greater influence over the people. And don't forget, this emotional behavior behavior will be strengthened by great healing demonstrations which are now even beginning to take place. This also will increase attendance and help the church financially. But clearly mark this undeniable fact. Such church growth which comes from celebration will bring the people under the control of another spirit. Because any religious organization that is willing to sacrifice godly standards and doctrinal beliefs to gain membership is entering dangerous ground and will eventually come under the deceptions of Satan. This is why God has given to his remnant church very clear warnings regarding excitement that is created by shouting, the use of drums, drama, Christian rock music, dancing, false tongues, and holy laughter, all of which is nothing more than entertainment now listen to what God revealed to Ellen White. Selected Messages 2, page 36 and on. 
the things you have described as taking place in Indiana, I want you to notice here that Satan tried this before, and Sister White is talking about it. She says, and I quote, The Lord has shown me would take place just before the close of probation. Every uncouth thing will be demonstrated. There will be shouting with drums, music, and dancing. The senses of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to make right decisions. A bedlam of noise shocks the senses and perverts that which, if conducted aright, might be a blessing. The powers of satanic agencies blend with the din and noise to have a carnival. And this is termed the Holy Spirit's working. Those things which have been in the past will be in the future. Satan will make music a snare by the way in which it is conducted." Unquote. Now let's discuss some of these methods used by Satan. Let's take the shouting. The promise keepers are famous for their shouting demonstrations. I know uh, personally of individuals who have returned from these gatherings and they could hardly speak for days because they were so hoarse. In spite of God's warnings, many Adventist pastors and even some of our church papers are encouraging our men to attend. Heaven forbid. And then there is another of Satan's latest attacks, holy laughter, which is penetrating Christendom, both Protestant and Catholic. And now, the Seventh-day Adventist. Beware. It may be offered to you before long. For I read in the Pacific Union Recorder of May 1, 1995, an article by Daniel Matella, the pastor of the Provo, Utah Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I quote from his article, and I consider it to be blasphemous. Quote, Billy Joel hits the nail on the head for many when he sings, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. Are you getting the setting now? I continue. We can see humor in the way Jesus interacted with people. Jesus was quick-witted. He liked to hang out at parties. Kids and teenagers liked to get close to him. Jesus knew how to throw back his head in a hearty laugh. Don't you believe it, friend. That's not the Jesus that I know. Then, reading his comments, he admits where it comes from. Notice. He states, A little thought reveals that this strange religion of laughter 
or religion which is laughter is actually keyed both to Pentecostalism and its offspring, Celebrationism. Isn't that something? I continue to read from this writer. Sprinkled all through the pages of Scripture, there are celebrations and parties and festivals and feasts, times of outrageous joy and laughter. Unquote. And so our church paper is preparing the members to become involved. Let me tell you how this holy laughter developed. Taken from the Pentecostal publication, Charisma. It began in the summer of 1979 in South Africa. Rodney Howard Brown, a Pentecostal minister, was praying. And he demanded that God give him something new, or he would go up to heaven and take it from him. Notice these words, and I'm quoting. Either you come down here and touch me, or I will come up there and touch you, unquote. Suddenly, in the midst of this blasphemous prayer, he states his whole body felt like it was on fire, and he began to laugh uncontrollably. And then he wept, and then notice, and began to speak in tongues. Howard Brown then says, I was plugged into heaven's electric system, and since then my desire has been to go and plug other people in. Since he came to America, thousands are now going to church to laugh uncontrollably for hours. And this is considered a great new revival. For instance, in Oral Roberts University, where it was presented, classes were canceled for two days when 4,000 students experienced the gift of holy laughter. And the Vineyard Christian Churches in America and in Canada acclaimed this as a great new spiritual revival. As I read, quote, soaked by the Spirit or hit by the Spirit. Recently, a Holy Laughter Conference was held in 1994 where 2,200 pastors from all around the world were hit by the Spirit. Here is an example of a happy feeling, excitement, exactly as Sister White prophesied. And I'm going to read this from Newsweek magazine, February 20, 1995. On a recent weeknight in Toronto, 1,500 worshipers gathered in the Vineyard Christian Church and had a good laugh. It began when a dozen pilgrims from Oregon got up to introduce themselves and then began to fall to the floor, laughing uncontrollably. An hour later, the huge new church looked like a field hospital. Dozens of men and women of all ages were lying on the floor. Some were jerking spasmodically. Others closed their eyes in silent ecstasy. 
A middle-aged woman kicked off her pumps and began whooping it up in a dance. Scores of others proclaimed deliverance from emotional and physical pains. I've been living in my spirit, said a woman from Long Island, New York, still giggling after 20 minutes on the floor. These communal laugh-ins have been going on six nights a week, every week, for over a year at the charismatic congregation near Toronto's International Airport. In all, more than 100,000 people have experienced the Toronto Blessing, which believers interpret as an experience of the Holy Spirit, much like the speaking in tongues mentioned in the New Testament. Hundreds of visiting pastors have taken the blessing home to roughly 7,000 And now notice how this is spreading. In Hong Kong, Norway, South Africa, and Australia, plus scores of churches in the United States. It is a gusher of the Holy Spirit, says the pastor of the Toronto Vineyard, who now travels around the world spreading the hilarity of the Lord. Let's take up another. Drums. I have seen and heard them in the worship service within the Seventh-day Adventist Church creating a bedlam of noise that shuts away the Spirit of God. Music, if you want to call it that. I've personally walked out of a church where so-called Christian rock was being presented. And I can also personally testify that I have experienced in my evangelistic meetings that it took some 30 minutes to regain the power and spirit of God after a religious rock rendition. Dancing. I've seen a video of dancing in the aisle within the Seventh-day Adventist Church with general conference personnel on the platform doing nothing to stop it. Drama. For many years now, it has been taught in our colleges with drama teams displaying such talent in the sacred pulpit. And it's become the accepted thing. But I read in manuscript 41, 1900, those who profess to love and reverence sacred things and yet allow the mind to come down to the unreal, to simple, cheap, fictitious acting, are doing the devil's work just as surely as they look upon and unite in these scenes. And then in Review and Herald, January 4, 1881, the purpose and objectives may be good, but little by little, the spiritual element is ruled out by the irreligious, and the effort to harmonize principles which are antagonistic in their nature proves a decided failure. And then 
comes this decisive declaration found in Fundamentals of Education, page 229, in which Sister White says, I have not been able to find in the life of Christ an instance where Christ educated his disciples to engage in theatrical performances. And yet, Christ was our pattern in all things. That settles it for me. You can readily see how nominal Adventists are being set up for the coming false revival of excitement. Please consider with me the factors that develop spiritual excitement. One, satanic power, holy laughter, false tongues, satanic Christian rock music. Two, so-called divine healings. Three, church leadership, endeavoring to find new methods to increase church membership. Four, the use of entertainment such as drama rather than preaching the three angels' messages. Just this past week, I received a letter from a sister who bemoaned the fact that she had attended the 11 o'clock service. There was not one word of preaching. The entire 11 o'clock service was a puppet show. Unbelievable. But I hear someone ask, how do we know that this counterfeit revival will be the start of these closing events? Because we shall discover that this satanic excitement comes prior to the National Sunday Law, causing Protestantism, Catholicism, and Spiritism to join hands in a threefold union. And such a union will take place in the United States of America. And when it does, it will spread to the entire world. Thus all nations will form an image to the beast in a new world order. I must remind you again, when men in spiritual leadership develop wrong principles to obtain authority, they are inviting the control of demons. We so often use the term the threefold union, but outwardly it will appear only as a twofold union, for Satan is very cunning. While displaying his power, he will be careful not to reveal its source. Another individual this last week sent me these quotations which fit in here very well. Multitudes of deceptions that will prevail in these last days will encircle you and you will change leaders and not know that you have done so. Isn't that interesting? Review and Herald, December 16, 1890. And here's another. Volume 5 of the Testimony, 394. They will not recognize Satan as their enemy, that old serpent, but they will consider him as a friend, 
one who is doing a good work. Can you imagine it? And then here is another, in the upward look, 135. Let none suppose that because they have been used as the Lord's instrumentalities, they are all sufficient. The Lord uses men and honors them by giving them his wisdom as long as they are true to him and do not gather glory to themselves. Those who take themselves out of the Lord's hands and think themselves capable of managing the work are not led by his spirit, but by another spirit. Satan steps in and they change leaders. Then comes the crookedness and the subtlety of the serpent's guile. One more, series B, number 248. Men in position of responsibility are in danger of changing leaders. And then she adds this positive note. This I know, for it has been plainly revealed to me. So let us now discern how God has revealed what is to happen through inspiration. And it will start with a program of fellowship with powers whom God has told us to separate from. In Bible Commentary 7, page 910, Protestantism shall give the hand of fellowship to the Roman power. Then there will be a law against the Sabbath of God's creation. And then it is that God will do his strange work on the earth. Authentic reports are numerous of such fellowship now taking place within our church, such as Catholic priests invited into Adventist pulpits. Believe me, I was shocked to read of my own alma mater, Pacific Union College, having an ex-Catholic priest conduct a week of prayer in which he lauded their holy days, such as Easter, and told of his encounters with the dead. Can you imagine the most sacred experience that ever comes into our colleges is the week of prayer, and to have an ex-Catholic priest conduct it? And then I hear of continually of Catholic Holy Days being celebrated within the church in which the community from the other churches are invited to join us and of our hospitals joining in management with that power which God has declared to be the man of sin. There is no doubt we are starting a program of fellowship of which God has warned us never, never to enter. Such fellowship will lead into a confederacy. Bible Commentary 7, page 975. The professed Protestant world will form a confederacy with the man of sin, and the church and the world 
will be in corrupt harmony. This will lead to a uniting of forces to obtain the power of government. Great Controversy, page 607. The Church appeals to the strong arm of civil power, and in this work, Papists and Protestants unite. Furthermore, let us remember something else that will happen. Great Controversy, page 444. To secure such a union, the discussion of subjects upon which all are not agreed, however important they might be, from a biblical standpoint, must necessarily be waived. Is this why we seldom hear today of the three angels' messages being preached from our pulpits? Note how specifically this has been stated in Great Controversy 445. When the leading churches of the United States uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy. This will make it possible for a united church system so that the churches will be in command of a power never before experienced in America. Not only a power over people, but a power with the government. And don't forget a power that is thought to be of God, but we have been told is a power from beneath. Furthermore, while putting aside doctrines upon which they cannot agree, the churches will unite upon two important doctrines not found in scriptures. Great Controversy 588. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lies the foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. You see, the first teaches that man continues to live after death. This unites the churches to Satan. And second, Sunday sacredness unites the churches with Rome and with one another. While both of these doctrines originate with the dragon, they also lead to obedience to Catholic law. Testimonies 5, page 712. When our nation... United States, shall so abjure the principles of its government as to enact a Sunday law, Protestantism will in this act join hands with popery. It will be nothing else than giving life to the tyranny which has long been eagerly watching its opportunity to spring forth again into active despotism." Unquote. Another factor that we must keep in mind is that Protestantism will change its beliefs and practices, but Catholicism will never change. Review and Herald, June 1, 1886. 
This union will not, however, be effective by a change in Catholicism, for Rome never changes. She claims infallibility. It is Protestantism that will change. The adoption of liberal ideas. Notice that. The adoption of liberal ideas on its part will bring it where it can clasp the hand of Catholicism. And this is actually happening today, and you better believe it. Bible Commentary 7, page 988. What is it that gives its kingdom to this power? Protestantism. A power which, while professing to have the temper and spirit of a lamb, and to be allied to heaven, speaks with the voice of a dragon. It is moved by a power from beneath. This is what makes it possible for the coming new world order, which we read in Revelation 17, 13. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. In Testimony 7, page 182, Yet under one head, the papal power, the people will unite to oppose God in the person of his witness. And then these words, this union is cemented by the great apostate. Thus Sunday sacredness will be the law of the new order. Testimonies 5, page 711. There are many, even of those engaged in this movement for Sunday enforcement, who are blinded to the results which will follow this action. They do not see that they are striking directly against religious liberty. There are many who have never understood the claims of the Bible Sabbath and the false foundation upon which the Sunday institution rests. This is the time when God's people who have seen no harm in following and accepting celebration methods of the ecumenical movement will suddenly face the test of their life, a time when life can be had only by a living faith, as spoken in Revelation 13, 16, and 17. And he caused all both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. In making this coming Sunday law, this nation will become the tool of Satan and bring the churches under such control that he can actually use the Protestant churches to destroy commandment keepers. In the book Maranatha, page 191, this lamb-like power unites with the dragon in making war upon those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
and Satan unites with Protestantism and Papists, acting in consort with them as the God of this world, dictating to men as if they were the subjects of his kingdom, to be handled and governed and controlled as he pleases. If men will not agree to trample underfoot the commandments of God, the spirit of the dragon is revealed. They are imprisoned, brought before the councils, and fined. Thus Satan usurps the prerogative of Jehovah. The man of sin sits in the seat of God, proclaiming himself to be God and acting above God." Unquote. And then again in volume 5 of the testimony, page 451, on this battlefield comes the last great conflict of the controversy between truth and error. And we are not left in doubt as to the issue. Now, as in the day of Mordecai, the Lord will vindicate his truth and his people. Evangelism, page 226. When the law of God is made void, when the Christian world is joined to the Catholic and the worldly in making of non-effect the commandments of God, then God's chosen people arise to defend the law of Jehovah. Now comes the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, the true revival of God to be experienced by his people. Joel 2, 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a feast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts and let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thy heritage to reproach. Praise God. We read in volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 525, In the time of testing and trial, the shield of omnipotence will be spread over those whom God has made the depositors of his law. I like that. When legislators shall abjure the religious liberty principles of Protestantism so as to give countenance and right hand of fellowship to Romanism, then God will interpose in a special manner in behalf of his own honor and the salvation of his people. Disaster, of course, is sure to follow national apostasy. In Selected Messages 2, page 373, it is at the time of national apostasy when acting on the policy of Satan. The rulers of the land will rank themselves on the side of the man of sin. It is then the measure of guilt is full. The national apostasy is the signal for national ruin. And don't forget the last movement 
will be rapid. With you, June 15, 1897, this national apostasy will speedily be followed by national ruin, unquote. So as a result, intense persecutions will follow. Are you ready for what is soon to come? Are you preparing yourself in prayer and study of God's word every day? Are you now standing in defense of God's eternal law? Are you warning others that they too must be prepared to meet the soon coming God? Remember, and I'm reading Maranatha page 191, there is a marked contrast between those who bear the seal of God and those who worship the beast and his image. The Lord's faithful servant will receive the bitterest persecution from false teachers who will not hear the word of God and who prepare stumbling blocks to put in the way of those who would hear. But God's people are not to fear. Oh, I like that. God's people are not to fear. Satan cannot go beyond his limit. The Lord will be the defense of his people. Praise his name. He regards the injury done to his servants for the truth's sake as done to himself. When the last decision has been made, when all have taken sides either for Christ and the commandments or for the great apostate, God will arise in power and the mouths of those who have blasphemed against him will be forever stopped. Every opposing power will receive its punishment. Dear friend, God will save his people. Joel 2, 27. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servant and upon the handmaids. In those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness. And the moon unto blood. Before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Let us pray. O loving God, we lift our voice in supplication. Fill us so mightily with the Holy Spirit that we may clearly discern truth from error and never change leaders in this coming crisis. Help us to keep the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.